for gospel Christians, the title of the album and the hit song on the 1979 classic rock album by ACDC, entitled, I'm on a highway to hell, was quite startling. Now, in the canon of what is recognized as classic rock songs, that's one song that's in the canon. Lead singer Bon Scott thundered it out, dancing across the stage with his mic. I'm on a highway to hell. Six short months later, Bon Scott would be dead. He died so young. It is said by some around him that he drank himself to death. Now, those who love classic rock love that song, irrespective of the lyrics. But the question I want to ask this morning as a passage into Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, is this. What if that song is true? What if in our sin, we are on a highway to hell? What we need then is to get off the highway. The greatest off-ramp ever constructed was the one Jesus Christ made for whosoever will would come. But I want you to know that nobody is interested in the off-ramp in that access unto life through Jesus Christ until we realize the tragic circumstances of our own sin. Where are we this morning? Which road are we on? This text before us from the book of Romans questions our perceptions of ourselves and our perception of God. And it runs after our heart and pursues us. Come to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. I want to read it to you in just a moment. Paul is actually concluding the introduction in the book of Romans in this chapter. Three chapters of an introduction. Of course, we all remember Romans 1. Wicked world out there, they need Jesus. And it's true. That's Romans 1. Romans 2 is the salt of the earth, good people. You know, I'm I'm all right. They need Jesus too. Those full of their own perceptions of self righteousness. But then it gets to the religious. Those people say, hey, I'm okay because I'm religious or I do this or I do that. And the quintessential religious person in the first century was the Jewish community. And so he begins to talk to the Jewish community. And that's right in the middle of where we are. And if you really, they were raising a question with Paul. Hey, are you saying there's no advantage to us as Abraham's children in being Jewish? And Paul says, 
in chapter 3 and verse 1. Oh, no, no, there's great advantage. You were given the oracles of God. Yeah, that's right. We got the Old Testament scriptures, Paul. Don't you ever forget it and don't run us down the road because we're great because we got the Old Testament scriptures. They probably should not have pressed that argument so hard because what he does is he opens up the Old Testament scriptures and he shows them just what all of our hearts are like. That's the passage before us. Let's consider it together. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The word of the Lord. Now, I want to go two different directions this morning. First, I want to raise a question and answer it with, and discuss it with three assertions. The question is, what's wrong with the world? Secondly, this passage puts its arms around our conscience and asks us three questions for living that we need today. Let's consider it together. First, what's wrong with the world? Now, in this divided age full of acrimony, there is one thing on which we can all agree. And here it is. Something is wrong with the world. But that's as far as we get. Answering the what is wrong with the world, uh, there's total disagreement on that. In fact, what I'm about to tell you this morning cuts across the grain of most everything you've heard about humanity and what our problem is. You see it in commercials uh, for drug treatment. You see it in sociology classes at the university, in anthropology classes. What, what is the problem? The Bible, in clear and unambiguous terms, discusses the problem and reveals it to us. Here it is. Our problem is our sinful hearts. But the world doesn't buy this. But that doesn't bother me. What bothers me more 
is persons in the orbit of what they would call Christian ministry who don't buy it either. Do you know there's a controversy about the hymn Amazing Grace? And the controversy stems from this word John Newton uses, the word wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I mean, just to say it candidly, here's the issue. Are we wretches or are we not? You know, there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful tradition in some cultures of churches where in the message, you know, they, they turn to each other and they say things to each other. The preacher will prompt them as a cantor, you know, turn to your neighbor and say, you know, whatever you're supposed to say, you know. Thank God for this, or thank God for, you know, turn to your neighbor and say this, you know, you're a wonderful brother. Well, turn to your, you know, I thought about, you know, the, the, using this line. I didn't know how well it will go. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are a wretch. <laughs> Just say that to each other this morning, you know. Is it true? Or is it not? Now, I want you to listen clear through and don't dismiss it too early. What does the Bible reveal about us? Three assertions here probing this question, what's wrong with the world? First, we all draw conclusions about who we are before a holy God. You might have some dissent and say, oh, come on, Eric. No, when George Gallup poll calls me or when Pew Research calls me, uh, I tell them, you know, in the, in the multiple choice, I tell them I'm a nun, N-O-N-E. I'm not religiously affiliated. I have no religious affiliations. So this question is not even relevant to me. I don't even believe that there is a God. No, no, no. No, everybody believes something. In that sense, you believe there is no God. You believe there's no merit in pursuing a God because you don't believe there is a God. You believe something. And by the way, when I look at all that he's created, your faith is greater than my own. It's extraordinary to believe that there's nothing and nothing created everything that is. I mean, that, that's a lot of faith. But there, there, there then becomes, so everybody believes something about humanity, believes something about God. Even if they say there is no God, that's a belief about God. So everybody's a believer. Just not everybody is a gospel Christian. Now, there's either three things, one of three things going on. Either A, humanity is well and nothing is wrong. Now, who would vote for that? Or B, now, humanity is sick. We need to get well. Or C, Humanity is dead, found unresponsive to God and the truth and the very things that would lead us to life. Now, the Word of God reveals to us what is true about us and what is true about God. Think of Isaiah 6. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus is born in a vision, is caught up into heaven. Two things strike him. Number one, how holy, remember that word means separate, how different God was from humanity. Around the throne, they were crying out, holy, holy, holy. 
three times mentioned for stress and to accent what was outstandingly revealed in his presence. But there's something else that dawned upon Isaiah in that moment, and that was God is holy, first. Secondly, I am sinful. I'm undone. And that's when they brought the censer from the altar and put it in his mouth for cleansing. God is holy, separate from us. At the end of the day, we must decide where we are going to get our information about reality. The word of God says this about humanity. We are a sinful lot before a holy God. Now, the second assertion, we'll spend most of our time here because it takes us through what is said in these verses. We are all comprehensively affected by sin. Look at verses 10 through 18. Notice the terms that are used. None is righteous. Not one. No one understands. Notice how unequivocal and all-encompassing these words are. All have turned. Not some have turned aside. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now you say to me, Eric, I came to be encouraged. What in the world are you doing? I am encouraging us to take up what God revealed about us as our own view of ourselves. And in case you're becoming distracted and already working on your next week in your own minds, just get to the bottom line. Until you get there, you don't appreciate Jesus or have any need of the good news about Jesus Christ and what he came to bring. And when you get there, you will never recover from who Jesus is and what he did for us. Because in spite of who we are, who are we, Eric? We are Romans 3, 10 through 18. In spite of that, he gave up himself for us, to redeem us from that and make us brand new like himself. This must be our frame of reference to understand ourselves in our world. What's going on? Everyone has been affected by sin's entrance. Or what St. Augustine said in the 5th century was, we are corrupt and corrupting. Now, the mother load is in verse 11. The mind, verse 11, none understand. The heart, none seeks after God. Verse 12, the will, none do good. We have been affected in every part of our human constitution by sin. It doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be. Depravity means that all that we are has been affected by sin. Our mind, our heart, our will. Now please note in verse 11. No one seeks for God. That's what the Bible says. No one seeks for God. Now, somebody may tell you, hey, we're having a seeker's service, seeker's oriented service. What's that? 
Well, it's a service where people seeking for God come as they seek to find him. Really? Well, I thought no one seeks after God. Well, these, the ones we're inviting are the exceptions. What about the no one part? And what's amazing, if by God's grace we have come to know Jesus, it doesn't put us instead for a gold medal because of what we've done. But it makes Jesus and grace look all the more amazing because it never started with us seeking God. A poet wrote this, and I love it, anonymously. I don't know who wrote it, but it's good. I think it became the text of an old, old hymn that we don't sing. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my heart to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine unfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wert long before with my soul, always thou lovest me. Say, Eric, I love God. I decided that I loved God. Let me tell you, if you're here this morning and God has opened your heart to believe, I want to explain to you why you love God. You love God because he first loved you. See, this message is really about how much gusto we sing, with how much gusto we sing Amazing Grace. I mean, is it amazing or not? I mean, if it was you who decided to follow Jesus, if it was you who did it all, then you can yawn singing Amazing Grace. If you were involved in some co-op effort, you know, I did my part and God did his part, why, you'll, you'll sing with a little gusto. But if you come to realize that you weren't seeking him, had no interest in him, And by his mercy, it dawned upon our dark, sinful hearts that Jesus lives and that he loves us and that in his death, he's resolved the awful consequences of our sin and guilt and shame. Tell you what, you stand and you sing amazing grace with all the gusto. And when you get to that word amazing, you really pour it on because you realize just how Amazing grace is where sin did abound. Grace, grace did much more abound. Notice he accents further the comprehensive nature of sin by using body parts. He starts with the head, the mouth, the lips, the throat, and gets to the feet. It's reminiscent of what Isaiah said when he said, how corrupt we are in sin from the, Isaiah 1, 6, from the sole of our feet to the top of our head. And I, I used to find fascinating, I mean, we never use this word, but the King James Version has, uh, of Isaiah 1, 6, has wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Trying 
in the most cryptic way to note what our sin is like before his perfections and the light of his glory altogether. Our throat is affected. Verse 13, our tongues are affected. Our lips are affected. Remember Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our speech. Remember when Paul said, Timothy, show yourself an example of, to those who believe, 1 Timothy 4.12, in speech and conduct, faith and life and purity. What does our speech say about our heart and who we are? Our mouth, verse 14. Our feet, verse 15. It's a comprehensive head-to-toe indictment. The Russian poet Turgenev said this, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. Think of what he said. Now notice verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Like anyone needs to tell us, we live in a violent age. It's extraordinary, the age in which we live in, and how accustomed we have become to violence as regular fare in news stories. We're we're now beyond being shocked. A historian from a previous generation did a study, Will Durant, some of you have his long volumes of history. He stated at the end of his study that in the last 3,421 years, only 268 years have ever existed when there was not war in the world been a study done of how much money was spent per every individual who lost his life in World War II, and it's an astronomical figure. It's stunning. That's just who we are. Now notice, verse 16, the way of sinners, like somebody needs to tell us this, the way of sinners is hard. Notice the turmoil of spirit. It's not good. Verse 16, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. You say, Eric, why do we live in such a mental health crisis? Does it have anything to do with the fact that we are unwilling to acknowledge that our root problem is the sinfulness of our own heart? Not that we are a victim or that we want to shift blame to something other than I have broken the law of God. And the natural consequence of that has been this ruin and misery. The way of peace, shalom, they've not known. The way of a sinner is hard. If you want to really complicate your life, just make a regular habit. Take, for example, of breaking the Ten Commandments. Break them about three times a piece this week and just see how well that serves you in your life. You talk about being tied up in a terrible knot. C.S. Lewis said, God created us to relate to him like a gasoline engine is created to run on gasoline. When we try to live our lives some other way other than relating to God and put another synthetic fuel in the tank, the engine will sputter. Is your engine sputtering? And does it have anything to do with the fact that you've never been willing to look down the barrel of what is true about us, and that is our hearts are right here. 
and we need his grace, which is the glory of the rest of the book of Romans, that's what we get in Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet these persons described in Romans chapter 3, God commended his love toward us and died to become culpable for our sin so that we could be liberated and be made free and forgiven. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It reads cryptically, as Paul wrote it, God not before them. You know how most of the world lives with God not before them. There's a colloquial used in conversation, garden variety conversation phrase that we use. It's, uh, tell you what, Eric, that was just not on my radar screen. Do you realize that God is not on most of the world's radar screen? There is no fear of God before their eyes. And lest you say, yeah, I'll tell you what, Eric, it's awful, terrible out there. How did you live your life this week? How did I live mine? And was the fear of God a driving consciousness as we practice the presence of God in the avenues of our life, the paths, that's a word here, the paths of our life and where it took? In their considerations, God is not considered. Now, the third assertion is this. Until we realize how desperate our situation is, we have little appreciation for God's grace. You see, there's a little debate in chapter 3. We've looked at this before, chapter 3, 1. Then what advantage has a Jew? Remember, he's into this diatribe thing, this rhetorical device. He's arguing with his critics in the text in the first part of chapter 3. What are you saying, Paul? Jewish people don't have any advantage. Paul says, oh, no, you've, you've heard me wrong. Jewish people have an extraordinary advantage. You were given the oracles of God, the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings. They didn't go just to anybody. They went to Abraham's children. Yeah, that's right, Paul. And then he says, let me open the Torah and the, and the prophets and the writings. Let me tell you what you're really like. So he fills the rest of the chapter with quotes from the oracles of God about them. You talk about a smackdown. Because in 3.1 he said, well, there's a sense in which you have a great advantage. You were given the oracles of God. Now let me open the oracles of God and tell you about yourself and ourselves. But then they raise the question again, what then? Are we Jews better off? No, not exactly. We're not any better off than the irreligious. We're just all lawbreakers in need of God's grace. And what he's doing, he takes them into the dark room so they will appreciate the light. The light of the world, offered freely in Jesus Christ. The situation is the same for all of humanity. The whole world may be held accountable before God. Look at chapter 3 and verse 19. That's what he affirms. Verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be made right in his sight. 320. So here's the question of the morning. Have you ever realized your desperate plight before God apart from knowing Jesus Christ? Do you understand the position we are in as Adam's children 
if we don't know Jesus Christ as our Savior? It's described here. And we need to have the Word of God shape our understanding. It is in realizing our own sinfulness, and rather than rejecting it, owning it, that we come to see the beauty of Jesus for who he really is. Ah! Why be interested in Jesus unless we need a Savior? And if we need a Savior, no one is more beautiful than him because he has come. And before he could announce to them this great news and unpack a wonderful explanation of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that's the book of Romans, that's where we are. Before he could get there, he had to remind them, hey, don't forget about who we really are before a God who is holy. We are sinners in need of grace, which is what we get in Jesus. Is that how you view yourself? Remember, 120, we are without excuse. Chapter 2, verse 1, we are without excuse. Now we are told we are sinfully condemned apart from the grace of God in Christ. Now, what questions sit on our conscience from this passage? There are three of them. Number one, are we living lives full of deference for and consideration of Christ and his kingdom? Much of humanity lives, there's no fear of God before their eyes. By the way, what's before your eyes this morning? What drives your existence? What moves you forward? Tell you what, Eric, I'm planning to retire at 50, and then I'm going to play. Or, Eric, I'll tell you what, I've I've schemed, and I'm going to own a portfolio of properties, and I'm going to manage them. Uh, My husband and I are getting a second home, and we're buying more timeshares. I'm going to be the CEO of my company. Who is saying, I'm going to be devoted to Jesus Christ and order my life in submission to the one who loved me and gave himself for me, to whom I owe everything? Who is going to checkbook time schedule book, volunteer potential. Who's going to submit their lives to this one who submitted his life to the cross that we might be saved? Is the fear of God before our eyes? Was it this week? Will it be in the coming week? Secondly, how far away from realizing our nakedness before a holy God are we? There's a rather cryptic note in Revelation chapter 3. John, a follower of Jesus, is writing a church in Laodicea. Laodicea was quite a wealthy area. And one of the ways that they had become so wealthy is they had figured out this elixir that made up a salve that they would wipe on eyes that needed healing, and it would bring healing to their eyes. So they get real famous for this. And and so... uh, John, moved by God, writes to them and said, uh, you've never seen the shame of your nakedness. And so uh, here's some eye salve that will help you realize who you really are. Because once you see who you really are, then you see how beautiful Jesus really is. 
It's interesting. The Apostle Paul three times says something about himself in the New Testament. In Galatians 1.1, he said, I am an apostle. That was about A.D. 48. In A.D. 54, he writes 1 Corinthians. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm the last of the apostles, but I was one born out of due time. I finally got there through the Damascus Road. You know, count me in, but I'm kind of, you know, I, I got last place, but I'm in. Then we get to the pastoral epistles, A.D. 64, 1 Timothy chapter 1. You know what he says about himself? He says, I am the chiefest of sinners. It's like, poor Paul, what happened to him? I mean, this is a page out of the playbook for Pilgrim's Regress. As he went further, he became more thoroughly acquainted with the sinfulness of his own art. Or... Is it the mature among us who really understand the presence of indwelling sin? Who understand the depths of their depraved heart? The corruptness of their mind which stimulates those thoughts that we must all wrestle down and take into the obedience of Christ and take them into captivity. Does anybody other than me Fight it out for a pure mind and heart. How far toward I am the chiefest of sinner in perception are we? Or are our levels of self-righteousness so high that we have a hard time figuring out what in the world the Apostle Paul is talking about? What's wrong with him? Finally, do we realize that all of humanity is in the same boat? And the boat is sinking. Before Paul ever gets to the glory of this good news about Jesus, that's Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. He has to drag us through these dark verses that tell us the truth about ourselves. Do we own it? A Senate candidate in the state of Georgia is, uh, you know, politics, that's dirty business. He's getting attacked, and there was one particular recent attack, and it was pretty bad. And his response was interesting. It's Herschel Walker. I said, Herschel! What did you think of that? It just happened, that attack on you. <laughs> he just had a short quip. Those people need Jesus. <laughs> well, Herschel, you're right, kind of. Snarky, hateful, I want to tear you down, critics. Yes, Herschel, they need Jesus. But so do the sinfully indulgent, so do the self-righteous, and so do the religious. We're all in the same boat, and it's sinking. Back to ACDC, apart from Jesus, we're all on a highway to hell. But the good news about Jesus is there's a narrow way in knowing Jesus that is a way to life. Thank God for the narrow way.
real life, the life we've always wanted, is available to us freely as a grace gift from God. In court, at the arraignment of the accused, the charge will be read. They will ask him or her, how do you plea? The standard answer is always, not guilty. Often it is articulated with full-throated confidence. Once in a while, as a result of a clear-cut charge on a defendant who was caught on video, the charge is substantiated, and there is absolutely nothing for the defendant to say. As it were, they put their hands over their mouth, not unlike Job. I'm guilty. Verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped. What do we have to say before a God who is pure holiness other than to say, I'm guilty. I need your son, which is the way to life. I thought of that old gospel hymn. My faith has found a resting place. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, that he died for me. The story of the gospel is a story of a king come who resolves the awful tragedy of our sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. The queen just died. All things the monarchy has been before the news and before us the last two weeks. Queen of England. There was an editorial in the London Times, published by a man named Wilson. And it was full of uh, genteel British analysis and careful thought. The article was entitled, Can the King Save Us from Ourselves? Of course, they're not singing God save the queen anymore. They're singing God save the king. The writer writes, when I hear some of these people hogging the airways, I seem to hear not God save the king, but hark, the glad sound, the savior comes, the savior promised long. They give the impression these adepts, that with King Charles, we can look forward to a new foggy era in which the young of the inner cities put away their knives and pursue useful apprenticeships, possibly reviving the old crafts of dry stone walling or hedge rimming or beekeeping. The brutalist era, era in architecture is over as neo-Georgian townscapes arise on every side, replacing concrete multi-stories with Palladian branches of Waitros, while the churches re-echo the words of Cramner, which Thomas Cramner wrote, the Book of Common Prayer, widely used in the Anglican Church. Of course, the man is referencing the fact that the Anglican churches are empty in England today. 
Every decent person wishes the king well, and at the moment, the great majority of us feel like we are monarchists. But there are tough times ahead, and we lay an unnecessary burden on our new king if we pretend that he or any monarch is able to solve them. We are an impoverished, dangerously divided, viscerally confused country. At the moment, we are trying to numb the truth about ourselves from ourselves by taking an overdose of royalist sentiment. When the funeral is over, when the tears have been dried, when we have gone back to work, the reality of things will remain. The king cannot save us. What a different story the gospel tells that Paul will go on to explain. The king has come. The king has offered his life. The king offers to save whoever believes in him. The king will live long. Praise be to the king. Father, take the book of Romans and make it our frame of reference for life. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our most sufficient Savior. And in this announcement about him in the gospel, drive the force of its truths home to us such that we would live with joy and freedom from guilt and shame. You having resolved our sin, what is true about our hearts on Good Friday. And you who have brought us unto hope and the resurrection of the dead. Oh God, wrap our hearts around the gospel and around our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray.